from the uh, from the uh, things aren't always as they appear file comes the story of the perfect husband at Christmas time. There are several men. They're sitting around in the locker room of a private club after exercising, and suddenly, a cell phone on the uh, one of the benches ring. One of the men picks up the phone, and the following conversation ensues. Hello, honey, it's me. Are you at the club? Yes. Great, I'm at the mall, two blocks from where you are. I just saw a beautiful mink coat. It's absolutely gorgeous. Can I buy it? Well, well what's the price? It's only $1,500. It's on sale. Uh, okay, go ahead and get it if you like it that much. Oh, oh, also, honey, I stopped by the Mercedes dealership and I saw those new 2001 models. I saw one I really liked. I spoke with the salesman and he gave me a really good price. And since we've been wanting to exchange the BMW that we bought last year, whoa, 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 whoa what price did he give you? Well, $60,000. Oh, okay, uh, but for that price, we want it with all the options. She said, oh, by the way, I was going through and I was checking our bank statement out, and I noticed, uh, but, you know, anyway, before I get to that, the real estate agent called, and the house that we looked at last year, you know, the one that was over uh, off of the lake, the one with the the lakefront property, the one with a quarter acre, almost a half an acre beachfront property, you know, that one, the one I really liked a lot, that English garden, you know, and all that goes along with it, the pool and everything. He's there, yeah? Well, good news. It's up for sale. And he goes, well, well, wait a minute. How how much? She said, 1.5 million. He said, wait, wait, wait. You know what? Don't offer him any more than a million four. She said, great. She goes, honey, I love you so much. He goes, yeah, uh, yeah, well, me too. Hangs up the phone, he shakes his head, stands up, holds up the phone and says, hey, does anybody know whose phone this belongs to? (laughs) The perfect husband at Christmas time. Anyway, things aren't always as they appear at first glance. And a closer examination of the facts are always in order before coming to any conclusion. And a case in point is there are many today who erroneously believe that one cannot uphold the truth and at the same time be compassionate towards people. It's almost as they say, you know, one can't believe in God, believe the Bible, believe in moral absolutes, and still be concerned about people. Somehow or another, they they think that the two are exclusive of one another. You know, I paint a picture of these people who are somewhere on this far right that somehow or another they uphold standards, but yet they don't care about people. As though somehow or another the two are mutually exclusive. To have moral absolutes, to believe in God, believe the authority of the Bible, and yet at the same time we can't care about people in the process. And nothing could be further than the truth. Nothing could be further than the truth. Because I believe that those of us who uphold a standard, who believe in moral absolutes, who believe in trust in God, who believe the authority of the Word of God, if we truly believe what we say we believe, we should be moved with the greatest compassion and concern for others that this world has ever seen. And in fact, the case in point that we'll look at today in our concluding message in the book of Romans, if you've got your Bibles, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 16, but we're going to see what I would call one of the most adamant Bible thumpers who has ever walked the face of the earth demonstrate a tremendous concern for others. In in, in this final chapter of Romans chapter 16, this is our, our final message in this series, we see the powerful results of the gospel through the changed lives of many who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we clearly learn of the impact they had on the culture in which they live. 
a culture that was very pagan as far as its philosophy and its way of living were concerned. Those people whose lives were touched by Jesus Christ changed their world, turned it upside down, caused those who were sitting around and watching and standing around and seeing things that were going on around them to want to know what in the world it was that happened to these people that they would become the people that they now were. You know, as we go through this particular study, it's the natural culmination of all that we've learned. You know, if you think about it, from the mountain peaks of doctrine, so to speak, to the pavements of Rome, the gospel was translated then as it should be today into life and everyday reality. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 16 as we see the results of the gospel and we also see Paul's concern for others, which, by the way, is directly a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, as we've gone through the study, the, the theme verse, so to speak, was uh, Romans 1.16, where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It's the dynamite of God. I'm not ashamed of it all because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And he, having experienced that transformation that takes place, the new birth that Jesus talked about in John, 3, 6, uh, John chapter 3, verse 3, talking about what must one do to enter the kingdom of God, and Jesus said, you must be born again. This transformation that takes place, if any man or woman's in Christ, old things pass away and all things become new. Man, there's a newness that takes place that the Bible talks considerably about, walking in the newness of life. Therefore, walk no longer as you used to walk, Ephesians 4 says, in the futility of your mind and darkened your understanding toward the things of God, but walk in newness of life. There's a new way of living. There's a new way of thinking. There's a new way of doing things. And those of us who have come to faith in Christ, the Bible says that we have been empowered through the Holy Spirit to live accordingly. And in Romans 16, we see Paul's great concern for others, which is fascinating because this was a man, Saul of Tarsus, who had no concern for others. His only concern was to uphold the law. His only concern was to promote his own agenda. And now this radical transformation that takes place, all of a sudden, now he cares about other people? This Bible thumper, this right winger, cares about people? That's exactly the point of Romans chapter 16. So if you've got your Bibles, we'll take a look at it. There's five ways in which Paul is going to demonstrate his concern for others. We're going to take a look at those. Uh, but first of all, let's just start with verses 1 and 2. We read this. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe who is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. In this particular passage that we're going to be reading through uh, chapter 16, we're going to note in five ways that Paul demonstrates a concern for others. The first way that he demonstrates it is, is found in the first couple of verses, which was his commendation of a woman by the name of Phoebe. And as we take a look at these first two verses, this commendation that he gives is a well-deserved commendation, but before we even take a look at this more closely, I want to kind of throw out a challenge to you. Before we look at this commendation to Phoebe, I want to throw out a challenge and I want you to consider something. If you are like me in some ways, when we come to a passage like this in the Bible, I'm going to ask you a question. You ask yourself and you answer it, and that is this. When you come to a passage like this, as the one we're about to see, where it's just filled with names of people, you just kind of have a tendency to just kind of go, okay, what's after this? You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, uh, you know, first couple of names, I don't have that, and you just kind of go, uh, blah, blah, blah. there must be really nothing in it here for me. 
I mean, I want to be honest with you. I kind of come to a passage like this and I go, wow, this is really an interesting way to end the study of the book of Romans. But on the other hand, when we begin to realize, if you go back to chapter 15 and look at verse 4, the thing that really stood out in my mind as I was struggling and studying this particular passage is that we've already learned for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Then I began to realize that, you know what, there's a reason, obviously, as there always is a reason, why God chose to record the things that he chose to record and memorialize for all of eternity because, you know, God's word will stand forever. And so there's a reason that we see the names that are here. There's a reason that this passage is, is, is given to us. There, there's something in it for every one of us that will be a source of encouragement for us and a purpose behind it. Every person that we'll read about is an example in some ways for us to follow as those who have come to faith in Christ and want to live a life of service to Him. You know, as we look at this, we, the challenge is this, and I guess here's what I want you to consider. As we go through this, I want you to try to, as I did, identify yourself with the people and the names that are mentioned and what is said about them and ask yourself the question, is that true of my life? Is that true of me? And so we're going to look at this, and we're going to take a look at, in detail at every one of these. The first person that we see is a woman by the name of Phoebe. There's 30, she's the first of 35 persons who are mentioned by name in this chapter, and, that's ample, and there's ample reason why she heads the list. Notice the text. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria. Now, Sancria is eight miles east. If you were traveling from Corinth and going to Athens, you would go through the port city of Sancria. It's eight miles east of Corinth on the road to Athens. She, the Bible says, is a sister, and the sister has to do with the fact that she is commended by Paul to those at Rome as a sister in Christ. She has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, he commends her to the church at Rome, saying, accept her or receive her as a sister in the Lord. He goes on and, he, and also commends her that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Her name actually, Phoebe, means brilliant or radiant. And there was something about her life that was brilliant and radiant to the fact that, that Paul would commend her to the church which is Rome. We know from history, by the way, that Phoebe also is the one who was entrusted by Paul to carry the letter that we have read and that we've studied, this letter to the Romans. She is the one who was entrusted by Paul to carry this letter to the church which is at Rome. I'll talk more about that in a second. But which is interesting to me, and the thing that really stands out, is that those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we have a new relationship with one another. The Bible says that he commends her as a sister in the Lord. Now I want you to stop and think about what a radical idea that was to the churches that was at Rome or even to the culture as a whole at this particular time. We're talking about a culture who looked down or despised certain people. They despised those, for example, who were women. They despised those who were not free people that were slaves. They despised those of other economic status or, or uh, education, educational status. They despised and they had very clear tiers that were worked out or structures of who was in and who was out. And I want you to understand what a phenomenal idea this is that Jesus Christ, the Bible says those of us who have come to faith in Christ 
and receive him to, him to them, to us, who have done so, he gives the privilege or the right to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. A radical and revolutionary idea was also uh, told to us by Jesus as his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. He started off the prayer by saying, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven. Can you imagine the idea of being able to know God in a personal way, personal enough that we can call him our Father, and those of us who have come to faith in Christ would be considered brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is a radical idea, a new concept that was held, and a concept also that is clearly taught in Scripture as to the sin of partiality. You know, I believe that with sin nature comes the division of people. I believe that racism is a result of sin nature. I believe that classism is a result of sin nature. I believe that sin nature wants to divide people into certain groups. You're in our group or you're not in our group. You're excluded from our group or you are included in our group. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in a radical and powerful way is tell everyone in the world, John 3.16, whosoever shall call upon him, or the book of Romans we saw, whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Think about the idea here that, you know, we were all created in the image and likeness of God, but because of sin, that image and that likeness is tainted. We no longer see God in the reflection of humanity any longer. Sin has tainted the view that we have of God. But here in the gospel it says that when you and I come to faith in Christ, it's radically, it radically changes our whole concept of people around us. One of the wonderful truths of Christianity is that rich, poor, black, white, young, old, men, women, slaves, free, who come to faith in Christ are fellow citizens and also brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus liberates all who believe from sin and judgment. And also we see the results of this in that in all the names that are mentioned, Paul begins his commendation in this chapter by commending to the church at Rome a woman. And what a radical idea that is. She was also noted as a servant, as you'll see in verse 1. A servant of the church, which is at Sancria. The word servant translates diakonos, which is a term we get when we, use, uh, when we come to deacon. You know, the Greek word here is neuter, and it's often, also oftentimes used as church offices. And in fact, in 1 Timothy, we see in 1 Timothy 3, it says, women, like my, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. The word that's used of servant is the same word that's used when Jesus told the servants at the wedding at Cana to go and get the water. And, and, and then they were instructed to go get water and bring it back. Paul used the same term of servant when we saw in Romans 13, where it talks about that, that governing officials are servants or ministers of the Lord for the good of people, that they're servants of, of one another, that they're servants of society as a whole. Even Jesus was called a servant to the Jews, which is fascinating to consider the same word is used. Now, when we talk about in 1 Timothy the qualifications of a, of a deacon, it says that women likewise are to be, and then list all, the, all the, uh, the qualifications or character traits that we should find of a person who is in a leadership position. You know, it's fascinating as people read that and say, well, this doesn't have anything to do with any type of church office, and I say, yes, it does. 
because it, when we're talking about women likewise should be, just as the, the qualifications of the men that was just listed, we're also told that the women should likewise be the same way. Not that they were to likewise be that of elders, but to be likewise of that of deacons. And it's pretty obvious that the early church had an office which was called a deaconess, so to speak, of a person who was in a position of leadership and had certain responsibilities in the church. Now, we, we know from... Acts chapter 6, that that office took place at that particular time where the role of, of elder or pastor, as we would call them today, was separated from a job description standpoint of those who were dedicated to the word of God, to preach the word of God, to pray for the congregation versus those who were to do the administrative things that took place on the day-to-day -day, uh, roles that took place within a church. But as we look at this, the point that I'm making is very simple, is that he identifies her in a very special way as a servant of the church or the body of believers, which are at the church at Sancria, which was a sister, probably a daughter church of the one that's at Corinth, the church that was founded or started by members of Corinth that went there and started the church. Whether she had an office or not isn't as, as important as the fact that she, he, she came highly commended or recommended by Paul as a servant of the Lord, and he says this, receive her in the Lord. You know, as we're reading through 1 Peter chapter 3, for those of us that are husbands, one of the things that was always impressed upon me as I read that was that, you know, even when there are times that as men we don't get along with our wives, the admonition that's found in that passage is this, but you treat her as she is, a fellow heir of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The dignity that women deserve, the dignity that all people deserve, is founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God created humanity in his image and in his likeness. And we're elevated to the proper role in which we were created, to reflect the glory of God. That's why the Bible says that we as believers are to reflect the glory and the image of God in the world that's around us. And that's exactly what we find in this chapter. Individual after individual who has resumed or gone back to the original purpose of their creation which was to reflect the glory of their God in their lives. That's exciting. And as we look at this, we need to take a look. Now, I mentioned to you that uh, this radical thinking we've already seen in the book of Romans, and that is, you know, we're not to look or see the world around us as the world sees it, but we're to see things and people as God sees it. Not to be conformed to this world, not to be into classism and racism and genderism and all the things that take place in this world, but we're to have a radically renewed mind, and it comes through the Word of God. Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Many of us need our minds renewed in those areas of our life. And I challenge you and encourage you, as we consider the commendation of Phoebe, to change your thinking by adopting God's thinking toward those around us. Now, I mentioned that Phoebe was the one who took this letter. I want you to stop and think about the practicality of this for a second. She carried this letter to the church at Rome. They didn't have kinkos. They didn't have kings. They didn't have any copy centers. There was no way you can go and run like 500 copies of this and go ahead and distribute it around the community. The writing implements that they used were very expensive. And as a result, I want you to think of the practical aspect of handing this letter, the inspired word of God, to any individual and saying, I want you to be entrusted to take this to our brothers and sisters in the church that's at Rome. On a very dangerous mission, a very dangerous journey, because they didn't have, they didn't have Motel 6s, they didn't have Marriott's, they didn't have Hyatt's. They didn't have places to stay. She would not only have to travel over land, but she would have to travel by sea to get to Rome from where she was in a port, th in a port city of Sancria. So it was a very dangerous trip. 
And in fact, there wasn't many places to stay. You know, there's no room at the inn. The interesting thing about inns that were available at that time, not only they were very expensive, but they were very dangerous. Now, from our vantage point, from our cultural standpoint, if you've ever watched an old western, you've probably seen like hotels that are in the old west, you know, old westerns or whatever. But one thing you probably noticed is that every time there was a place to stay, there was usually a brothel associated with it. You know, there was a tavern or a bar on the first floor. There was a brothel on some floor. And then somewhere in between, you found a room to stay, which isn't exactly the kind of place that any of us would really want to find ourselves spending much time. So as a result, it was a very dangerous mission. And he entrusted to Phoebe this important letter to deliver to the church at Rome, knowing how dangerous it would be. The question you ask is, why in the world did he choose a woman? Here's a story that was given to me. I don't know. Maybe this helps, to, uh, helps us all to understand it. But there are three men that are standing by the banks of a river. They were trying to figure out how to get to the other side. The first man prayed to God saying, Please, God, give me the strength to cross the river. And poof, God gave him big arms, strong legs. He was able to swim across the river in about three hours. Seeing this, the second man prayed to God saying, Please, God, give me the strength and ability to cross this river. Poof, God gave him a rowboat and he was able to cross the river in about two hours. The third man, seeing what was taking place and seeing how it all worked out with the other two, he prayed also and said, please, God, give me the strength, the ability, and the intelligence to cross this river. And poof, God turned him into a woman. She asked for directions and walked across the bridge in a half an hour. So... I don't know how much truth there is to that, <coughs> but it makes a point. Back to something a little more serious. Notice what he says. He says in verse 2 that you're to receive her in the Lord. To receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Notice that. To receive her in a manner worthy of the saints. You know, Jesus said that we would know that, we're, that the world would know that we're Christians by our love for one another. That she was to be received. Now, obviously, when she shows up with this letter from Paul, she's already going to make a statement about the, her trustworthiness. But he's saying, for those of you who may doubt, those of you who may still look down upon or frown upon women, let me just tell you something. Receive her in a manner that's worthy of a saint. Because she is. Now, don't forget, don't get hung up on the saint thing. You're either a saint or you ain't. You're in or you're out. You either trusted Christ or you haven't. So, you know, the whole idea of being a saint is a person who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, he says, and notice what he also says, you receive her in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter. The word matter is a word that we get our word pragmatic. Or, or the pragmatic ways that you may help her, she may have need of you. And, and the point is this, it has to do with business. She would be there as a person who is there to conduct business. He's saying, hey, in whatever matter, whatever pragmatic or practical way that you can help her, make sure that you do, sir. Make sure that you do so. For she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. You know, the statement as we look at this says as much about Paul as it does about Phoebe and his understanding of what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ. See, Paul, Paul talks about this, and he esteems her in a gracious manner, and he's also indebted to her as a fellow believer who has helped not only him in a personal way, but many around him. She is a wonderful woman and a wonderful example of what it means to be uh, a person who is a servant to the Lord. And a beautiful picture for every woman to look at as an example of what it means to be a servant of Christ and of others. The question that I ask you as women, I would ask you, is that true of your life? 
Her reputation, as it says, preceded her. The people, when, they, when she came to them, it was, it, was, it was a wonderful example of what Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ does to elevate people to their rightful position in God's creation. The question as a woman you have to ask yourself is, what exactly is it that people know you for or what legacy will you leave? Second thing is this. He talks about cordiality. And the reason I, I, I look at this or chose this word is because when you look at verses two through, uh, 3 through 16, you will see one word that continues to jump out off the pages, and that is the word greet. Notice what he says. Greet in verse 3. Greet in verse 5. Greet again in verse 5. Greet in verse 6. Verse 7. Verse 8. Verse 9. Verse 10. Verse 11. All, all, many times, multi, a multitude of times. In fact, there are 17 times, if you want to circle, which I did as I went through this, the word greet in this particular passage just jumps off the page at you. You know, it has to do with an outpouring of love or concern. You know, when he says greet somebody, he's not saying, hey, by the way, uh, you know, say hey to so-and-so. Or, you know, say, hey, ask him, what's up? You know, it goes beyond that. Because when he says to greet someone, as we see, there's a very specific reason for it, and there's words of encouragement that will be there, because not only does he mention the person by name, but he also mentions something that's true of their life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And what's true of their life as a believer is, is what should challenge us to consider whether that's true of our, our life or not. And so you'll notice that he hasn't even been to Rome, as we've already read. He wanted to go to Spain and pass through Rome. He has never been to Rome, and yet he mentions 24 people in this passage, 17 men, 7 women, and many of households, and we don't know how many people there were, but he mentions all of these people, and he has never been there, but yet there's something about their lives that demonstrate a concern by Paul for the lives of those he's about to mention. Now, we could spend forever just going through each of their lives, each of their stories, what God did in their life, how they came to be in the position that they're in, but I want to just kind of go through and give you an overview of every one of these people for the purpose of trying to identify what is true of their life that should be an example of ours. The first people that we're introduced to are in verses 3 through 5. He says, Greet Presca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Presca and Aquila. Presca and Aquila had fled from Rome to Corinth under the emperor Claudius who had expelled all the Jews out of the city of Rome. They had fled from Rome to Corinth is where Paul had actually met them the first time around. And as we'll see, ultimately they end up back in Rome after a period of time. Now what's interesting is, and I'd already mentioned to you, is that, uh, that in the synagogues at that particular time, men sat on one side and women sat on the other side. And not only did men sit on one side and women sit on the other side, but even among the people that sat on each side, they were then further divided into groups. For example, if that was the case, all the women would be sitting here, all the men would be sitting here. As Paul would come into that particular city and he'd go into the synagogue, he would recognize his place to sit with the men. And not only did he sit with the men on the side he was supposed to sit, but within that particular group, they were broken down by occupation. So you would come in and you would go, okay, you know, what do you do, what do you do, oh, here's what I do. And as we know from, from, from the scriptures is that Paul was a tent maker, which is another word for leather worker. He actually worked with leather. And Priscilla, or Presca and Aquila were also tent makers as well. 
So it's obvious that Paul became identified or introduced to Aquila at that particular time through his time in the synagogue, began to meet with them, talk to them. They had something in common. Not only did they have in common the fact that, that uh, they were leather makers or tent makers, but as we end up finding out that Pr- Pr- Priscilla and Aquila also had a, a sensitive or tender heart for the things of God and were open to listen and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Priscilla and Aquila were together at that particular time. What's interesting about that is that they're mentioned six times in the New Testament, their husband and wife, and it's incredible as we go through it. And oftentimes, Priscilla's name is mentioned first. Now, we're not told why that is. Maybe it's because of her personality. Maybe she was the more dominant one. Maybe she was the more gregarious one, outgoing one. We don't really know, but we know that she was given respect because Paul recognized that there was something special about her, and she was mentioned that way. Now, there are also times that Luke mentions them in a reverse order, so we don't have to get too hung up on that. But, it's, it, but it just goes back to the first point that I made, is that Jesus Christ, as he changes lives, also changes society and culture and, and viewpoints and the way that we think and look at one another. So they are fellow workers with Christ. Notice what he says about them. He says, greet them, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risk their own necks. For my life they risk their own necks. He's saying that they went out on a, they went out on a limb for him. They stood up with him as he was persecuted and as he was called out in public. They, in, in a, from a man's perspective, risked their own life for this couple even though God is in perfect control and timing of all things, we know it's appointed by God for man to die, but from a, from a practical uh, mental sta- man, man's standpoint, they stood up for him in a time of crisis. And he said, man, you know what? There's something special about this couple, and I want you to know that and understand that. And he says that, he goes on to say that not only do they risk their necks for me, but I'll, and not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Say, man, everybody should be grateful to these people, this couple for what they did. There's something else that we know from Scripture that was, to me was very exciting about this couple, and that is, is that they have a very clear command of the Word of God. I want you to, to listen to Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Aquila and Priscilla moved from Corinth to Ephesus, and while they were there, they met a young Jewish preacher by the name of Apollos. He was an Alexandrian by birth and an eloquent man. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He did not have a full understanding of the gospel, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. It says, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They had a command of scripture. And when they heard someone teaching that which was not right or not, not complete... Because what they were, what he was teaching, what he was speaking about was right, but it wasn't complete. And they took him aside and they explained to him what was now we have the completion of God's plan, and that is that Jesus Christ had come and He had done what God had said He'd do. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He had accomplished what God had sent Him to accomplish, and that is the salvation of man to those who believe. So they explained to him further what was going on. You know, as I look at all this, all of us should be encouraged by this couple. And inspired by, one, their servant's heart, two, their knowledge of scripture, three, their courage to take a stand for those who are of the faith, and their ministry together as a couple. I can't tell you what a blessing that it's been for Linda and I to be able to serve God together as a couple. Not always do we do the exact same things, because obviously God has gifted us to do different things, but to use those gifts to God's glory, and to serve others. It's a wonderful thing to minister together 
so that there's no envy, there's no anger, there's no sense of, you know, you know, Linda ever feeling or my children ever feeling like I wasn't there for them, that everybody else came first, you know, God came first, other people came first. You know, it's a wonderful thing and it's a blessing to be able to minister together as a couple, knowing that each of us have been given different gifts to minister in different ways, and yet we both serve and love the same Lord who saved us by the blood of Christ. We need to recognize the importance of that. And as I see someone like Priscilla and Aquila, the challenge that I have for all of us is this. For those couples who have come to faith in Christ, individually, of course, but both are in agreement, what are we doing together? Though maybe differently and at different times, but for the same purpose, what are we doing to further the kingdom of God in our marriages? It's a challenge as I consider this particular couple. Notice also it says that the, to greet the, greet the church that is in their house in chapter uh, verse 5. That they met on a regular basis. The church met on a regular basis in their home. Talk about courage and taking a stand in a pagan culture. They weren't afraid to let people know that, hey, you know, we meet together and we praise the Lord. We have Bible study together. We come together. And what, it, what an exciting example that is for all of us. I am convinced and have become convinced over, over a long period of time that the majority of growth that takes place in the lives of every one of us as believers takes place off a church campus and in the neighborhoods and in the communities and in the world in which we live. That's why I am sold on the idea of small groups because the accountability is there, the Bible study is there, the prayer time is there. Everything that we need to encourage one another in our faith takes place there. When you come into a room like this and with as many people, most of you don't even know the people sitting next to you. So there's no sense of accountability. There's no sense of, of uh, you know, prayer or communion, so to speak, of knowing what's going on in one another's lives. It's a good time to come together and hopefully learn and be challenged from the Word of God. But the reality of all of it is, is that we become very comfortable in our culture of just coming and going for an hour to church on a Sunday or whatever it is, and then going about the rest of our week as if, you know what, our relationship with the Lord has no impact on our daily life. Well, that's not true. The church there met on a regular basis. Not only did they meet the first day of the week, but they met regularly, as most of our small groups do. And I would encourage you, if you're not in one, to consider that, because that's where true growth and, and discipleship and mentoring and accountability, that's the place where that'll take place. Coming in, sitting here, listening for an hour and going home, it, it, as, as well and good as that is and as challenging as it can be, isn't enough. We are bombarded in our culture with lies and deception on a regular basis and somehow we think that it's going to be washed away in an hour of Bible study a week, some of us don't even know where our Bibles are until it's time to come back to church again. Some of, you, some of us could leave them right in our seats and save a seat for next Sunday. I mean, think about it. I'll just save my seat. <laughs> you know, It's like we, we need to be challenged to consider that we need to have a renewed mind, and the only way we have a renewed mind is, is through the Word of God. He goes on and he mentions another person, yeah. Epinetus. He says, and greet the church that's in their house, speaking of Aquila and Priscilla, and greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. He's saying, greet Epinetus. He's the first convert to Christ, the first person in Asia to come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great thing? And you know what's even greater about the fact he came to faith in Christ? Is that Paul kept track of him. He wanted to know how he was doing. That's what discipleship's all about. He wanted to know how he was doing in his faith, how he was growing in the Lord. He's saying, hey, you know what? I, I kept track of him. 
If you've never discipled or mentored anybody, here's a question for you. Why not? If we're to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, it seems like it's pretty fundamental that we should all be discipling somebody at some point in our life. Older women are instruct younger women. Men are, older men are instruct younger men. We should be making disciples because that was one of the last things Jesus said. Go into the world and make disciples. How many of you, ask yourself the question, have ever, ever, ever met individually with one other person to teach them the truths about the Bible and Jesus Christ and the things that they say they believe after they've come to faith in Christ? If we're to be making disciples, ask yourself a question that I think that Jesus will ask all of us, and that is, who were those who you made disciples of? Give me a name. Well, there was a, you know, uh, there was a... Well, I thought about it. Hey, you know what? Do it. And what's fascinating to me is that Paul kept track of this man. And I believe that if he had emailed then, he would have emailed him. He would have written to him. He would have called him. He would have asked him. You know, I do it all the time. I call guys and just say, hey, how you doing? How are you walking with the Lord? People that 10 years ago that I know came to faith in Christ, 15 years ago that came to faith in Christ, people that we knew 8 years ago that were in one of our Bible studies that now live in New England or New Orleans or Atlanta or all over the country, we call them all the time and say, hey, how are you walking with the Lord? Send them tapes on a regular basis. We want to make sure and know that they're doing well and that they're serving our God. And I'll tell you what, when you get a phone call like that, man, it makes you stop and consider what's going on in your life because we want to be held accountable not only to one another, but we certainly answer to the Lord. And so he kept track of him. He's saying, greet him. Tell him I remember how he came to faith in Christ. And he was the first person in Asia of, of the first of many that had come to faith in Christ. He goes on and he says in verse 6, Greet Mary. Praise God for a normal name. Isn't that great? Mary, greet Mary. Man, I just read that and I was like, oh, I'll just stop right there. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Notice that. What was her legacy? The word worked hard means she worked and was weary to the point of exhaustion. How many of us can, how many of us can honestly say that we have worked to the, to the point of exhaustion? We're so weary in serving God that we're exhausted and we just need a little bit of a break to recuperate. She worked to the point of being weary from, an ex, from exhaustion of serving the Lord. What a great legacy. question for you is this. Is that true of your life? Is that true of my life? Am I so weary to the point of exhaustion? Paul may not even have known her personally, but her reputation of working hard was something he wanted to take and, and make a note of so that all the saints, all believers can say, hey, you know what? I need to examine myself. How hard am I working for the cause of Christ? To the point of exhaustion? Most of us are exhausted from our, our careers and our pursuit of education and our pursuit of money and, 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 uh, and our pursuit of hobbies and sports and, you know, entertainment. And, man, we're just weary. You know, most people I talk to that go on vacation, they need a vacation from their vacation. How many of you are like that? You come home from vacation, you're so exhausted because you pursued your, your, your uh, recreation or your relaxation time so hard that you need another week after you come home to recover from your vacation. But how many have ever been weary from serving the Lord? Verse 7, greet Andronicus, I'm sorry, greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who are also in Christ before me. Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, the word refers to the fact that Paul was probably a blood relative of these two. They were fellow prisoners. It could have been at that particular time or it could have been another time. They were outstanding among the apostles, which is an interesting phrase. It means this. 
that they were contemporaries of the apostles who were alive at that time, and they worked among them, whether it was Peter, whether it was uh, James, whether it was John, whoever it was, their work in serving God was under the, the apostles who were still alive at that time. Now listen to this very carefully. It says, who, were all, they, who also were in Christ before me. Think about this. They had come to faith in Jesus Christ before Saul of Tarsus came to faith in Christ, who we now know as Paul. This is important. There's good reason to believe that even though they were blood relatives, that Saul hated them because of their faith in Christ. Saul persecuted the church of Christ, and he was, he was condemning and bringing to justice, he called, Christians, those who had come to faith in Christ. There's good reason to believe that even his own relatives were imprisoned because of his hatred of Christ and Christians. If that is true, the example that I get from this that's so exciting to me is this. Even though our own family may hate us for our faith and trust in Christ, I believe that this couple, if Junius is a feminine name, which it can be, and they may be another husband and wife, but I believe that these two people were committed to praying for their relative, Saul of Tarsus. And it was their prayers, among the prayers of many, that were instrumental in Saul coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They were outstanding among the apostles. They were contemporaries of the apostles, and they had come to faith in Christ before Saul of Tarsus, and I believe that they prayed for him, and their prayers were answered and instrumental in him coming to faith in Jesus Christ. What's the example for us? How can we miss it? There are many people in our lives who hate us because we've come to faith in Christ. You know it and I know it. But we're not to be discouraged by that at all. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, man. It is dynamite. It is powerful. We see that it changed Andronicus and Junius. We see that it changed Priscilla and Aquila. We see it changed Eponidas. We see it changed Mary. And we're going to see it changed a lot of other lives. And the reality of all of it is, is that they were committed to praying for their relative. The question for you is this, and me, is am I committed to praying for the salvation of those who hate me because of my faith in Jesus Christ? For family members and neighbors and co-workers and employees and classmates and teammates and all the people that come in, we come in contact with, are we committed to praying for them even when they persecute us for his name's sake? What a wonderful story that is. What a wonderful truth that is. He goes on in verse 8 and says, Greet ample... Ampliatus. Ampliatus, it says he's beloved in the Lord. Uh, we know that Ampliatus is a slave name, so he was one of many slaves that had come to faith in Christ. Beloved in the Lord. He goes on, he says, Greet Urbanus in verse 9, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Urbanus, again, was a common Roman name, suggesting he was probably a Roman citizen. Paul speaks of him as a fellow worker in Christ. And, uh, and as he gives, he says, Greet him and let him know that we recognize his work or his service in the Lord. Urbanus is a common name. The word stachus means ear of corn. How'd you like to have that name? Um, the guy, I don't know if he had big ears, whatever. I don't know what the deal was. But, uh, but, but that was his name, Urbanus. He was uh, stachus, my beloved. You know, we know that stachus was, was, you know, a common name, an uncommon name. And as is mentioned, as we look at this, the thing that impressed, is impressed upon me is this, that Paul recognizes all, all people who had come to faith in Christ 
There's a cross-section here that we're going to see of slaves, of women, of those who were leather workers or construction workers, of those who were, were religious leaders. I mean, all lives were touched by the gospel. He says, greet, greet Urbanus and Stachus. He also says, greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. The word approved is used of precious metal. It means that when you test the metal to find out whether or not it's genuine or not, he says that this man was approved, meaning that he was tested and he was found worthy of his calling. He passed the test. question for you is this. As you and I are tested on a regular basis of our faith in Christ, whatever arena that is, the question is, are you found to have passed the test? Or do you compromise? Or are you afraid? He hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and might. You know, you look at these people, and they took a stand in a very hostile and, and, and you know, a violent culture. It says, agree to Pellas, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are the household of Aristobulus, which is interesting because it says the households of Aristobulus. We don't know anything about Aristobulus. We don't know if Aristobulus was a Christian. He probably wasn't. Otherwise, he would have been greeted personally. But many of his household had come to faith in Christ. How many there were, who they were, how they came to know Christ, we don't have any of the details. But we know that Aristobulus was, was a household that was recognized at the time. And there were many in his household who had come to faith in Christ. Which is interesting because it also leads us to greet Herodian, my kinsman. And he's talking about Herodian as a relative or a descendant, probably the grandson of Herod the Great. He says, greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Herodian, my kinsman. And so you, th you stop and think about the irony of this. I think about as I was reading through this, Herod the Great, you know, and as we study and we read, as we come up to Christmas, we read that Herod was enraged when he had found out that the Christ was born, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the Prince of Peace. He found out that there was a new king who had been born. He was so angry and enraged, the Bible says, that he sent his soldiers to go and to kill every child two years of age and under who he considered male children who would be a threat to his kingdom. He was so enraged that the king of kings was born and would usurp his position of authority. He tried to eliminate him from the face of the earth and obviously he failed. And I don't find it anything but, but a beautiful irony that Herod's grandson came to faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? That is so awesome. I mean, the fact that this guy hated God so much and he hated the Christ that he wanted to kill him and here his grandson comes to faith in Christ. What a beautiful story that is. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena, Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. They were sisters, possibly twin sisters. Their names mean delicate and dainty. But they were anything but that when it came to their work in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet Paris, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Notice that every one of these were workers in the Lord, worked hard in the Lord. And I read this next one. I don't know if you're, you're bored by now or not, but I'll tell you what. When I, when I read this next one, I couldn't help but be excited about it. Greet Rufus. Man, Rufus, a choice man in the Lord and is also his mother and mine. Here's why I got so excited about Rufus. Now, any of you who are Bible students or will immediately recognize from the Gospel of Mark that Rufus and Alexander were the sons of Simon of Cyrena. Okay? Simon of Cyrena. Anybody know who he is? He's the guy that they dragged out of the crowd to help Jesus carry his cross. Simon of Cyrena. Okay? The Gospel of Mark recognizes Alexander and Rufus as the sons of Simon of Cyrena. Simon of Cyrena was dragged from the crowd 
He was told to carry the cross, uh, the, 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 the big post that, that they used, because Jesus was tied to the cross beam, but the big post, he was to carry that. And in his contact with Jesus Christ, as in any one of our contacts with Jesus Christ, he was never the same. He was never the same. Simon of Cyrena, through his encounter with Jesus Christ, came to trust in him as his Savior. He went home to Cyrena, which is in North Africa, and he told his wife, and he told his sons, and he told anybody and everybody who would listen about how he had came to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. We read through a chapter like this much to our own loss. If we read it at all. We bust through it and we go, whatever. But do you realize that Rufus came to Christ because his father shared the gospel with him after having an encounter with Jesus on the road to Golgotha? Not only did Rufus and Alexander, his sons, put their faith in Jesus, but so did his wife. Because he says, not only greet Rufus, but greet his mom who was like a mother to me as well, as she served the Lord and served us. Man, I can't even begin to tell you the impression that God made on my heart when it comes to our challenge as men to make sure that we do everything we can and live in such a manner that our wife, if we're married, and our children come to faith in the same Christ that we've trusted with our eternity. We need to live in such a manner that people will see us, and even though they may not even agree at that point in time, but our lives are so exemplary of what it means to be a godly Christian man that they'll be so attracted to Jesus Christ because of how we live that they too will come to faith in the Savior. Rufus and Alexander came to faith because of the commitment of their father to share the gospel with them and to live a life that was pleasing. Simon, we believe, is dead at this point because he's not mentioned. But we know the Gospel of Mark, which was written in Rome, by the way, recognizes Rufus and Alexander as the sons of Simon of Cyrena and their mother, who had come into faith with Jesus Christ. What a wonderful story that is. And what a challenge that is, an example that is for every one of us. He goes on in verses 14 through 16. He says, Greet Asyngertus, and Phlegon, and Hermas, and Petrobus, and Hermas as well. He goes, and the brother that were with them, and Philogilus, thank you, and Julia, and Nereus, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Real people, real time, with a real need for a real Savior who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And their lives were never the same because of it. And they're greeted here in a very special way as a challenge to every one of us to consider how they live. Now, if you love people, you're also going to caution them as well. And that's exactly what it is. When you show a concern for people, notice what he says. Now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Notice that. He says, I want you to keep your eye. The word keep your eye has to do with the same word that we use for microscope or telescope. He's saying that I want you to keep a very close eye on those 
who cause dissensions and hindrances, not about the things that we've talked about, the things that really aren't important, but about the critical areas of the gospel, about faith in Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, about those who introduce the gospel of works, oh no, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that, Jesus minus this, Jesus minus that, the gospel of Jesus Christ, contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turned away from them. He wrote to the church of Galatia, he said, I'm amazed that you people have so quickly abandoned the gospel for another gospel that's not the gospel at all. How in the world can you hear the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, and immediately turn from that to all the other nonsense that's in the world? He's saying, I want you to keep a very close eye on people around those, of, those that you care about, are concerned about, and make sure they don't get caught up in false teaching. Keep a close eye on those people. He goes on, he says, For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Listen, how do you think these smooth-talking people have a following? Because they're smooth-talking people. And he says, I want you to keep an eye on those people, and I want you to call it out for what it is. If it's false teaching, it's false teaching. If it's a lie, it's a lie. If it's heresy, it's heresy. If it's from the pit of hell, it's from the pit of hell. I want you to be, be so concerned for those that you say that you care about to make sure that they don't get caught up in false teaching. Now, if you're not discipling anybody, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But for those of us who are meeting and discipling and meeting with people regularly and teaching them the truths of Christ and the Word of God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the world is filled with false teachers and lies. And we need to be able to help them understand the difference between truth and error. And the only way we can do it is through the Word of God. Thy Word is truth. Notice what he says to do. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Let me just give you a tip. We live in a world that's filled with all kinds of beliefs. Wrong, but a whole bunch of them. And many of us want to try to reach those people who are caught up in those belief systems, so we do all we can to study what they believe and learn as much about what they believe so that we somehow or another have a bridge that we can have a communication. To some degree, I don't knock that. But here's my problem. Some of us spend more time researching and studying false beliefs than we do studying the truth. And what Paul's saying is, you know what? I don't, I don't want you to know about all that garbage that's in the world. I want you to be, what? Wise in what is good. I want you to spend your time studying the Word of God. To those who were in Berea, they were more no, noble-minded than those who were in Thessalonica because what? They studied, they examined the Word of God to make sure that even what Paul was saying was truth. What concerns me is that many of us can sit in a church service and hear somebody pick up the Bible, say they're going to teach you from the Word of God, say some of the dumbest things, some of the things that, that, that are just from the pit of hell, from nowhere else, and that one person even picks up on it. They examine the Scripture and said, is that really true? How many of you have ever left here and gone home and said, you know what, I want to study that passage myself. I want to dig into it. I want to pull out a dictionary. I want to pull out an encyclopedia. I want to, I want to look at that. Did the guy even pronounce the guys, these people's names right? Yes, I did. <laughs> and I spent hours, I spent more time trying to pronounce these people's names. Thank God for Mary. But how many of us have ever gone home and, and, and said, I want to check the scripture to find out whether what was said today was even true from God or not? 
Now, obviously, as a believer, the Spirit of God, it lives within us to teach us or guide us into all truth. And, and oftentimes when, when heresy or error is promoted, there's something in our heart or in our soul or our spirit that says, that, that didn't sound right. There's something wrong with that. But many of us, we just leave it at that. That eh, didn't sound right. Oh, well, let's go have brunch. You know, but it, it's like, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Write it down. Make a note. Put a little side thing there. Go and dig in the Word. Examine the scripture. It is not my job to study for you. I can teach and I'll challenge and encourage, but you as individuals, as I am, and held accountable to God, to what? To be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Frankly, I don't really care to spend much time learning and studying about what people on little bikes and wearing ties believe. I don't care. Because if I know truth, and when they confront me with their lies, them and everybody else out there, I can just go right to the Word and say, gee, what you just said isn't right, and here's why. Because I know what? Truth. And the truth will set me free. We compare everything to the truth. Amen, brother. (laughs) Never too early. And notice what he says. He says, and turn away from them. Turn away from them. You know what? Especially those who are new in faith, the last thing you need to be doing is debating with someone who is of some cult what they believe versus what you believe. Because unfortunately, most of us, when we come to faith in Christ, don't know anything, but we've come to faith in Christ. And you know what? That's why we need to, what? Go into the world and make disciples. That's why we're to be used by God to help people grow in their faith. That's why if we're not doing it, it's nothing less than sin that we need to confess before God. And also not only confess that, but be praying that God would bring somebody into our life who we can mentor and disciple. Every one of us, I'm going to challenge you as we consider this new year coming up, I challenge all of us to be praying for someone that God would bring into our life, a young Christian who we can nurture in their faith and be a mentor and example to them. Because I'll tell you what, not only will they learn and will they grow, but you'll get your act together as well. Not that you don't. All right, here we go. Verse 21 through 24, we'll kind of bring it to a conclusion here. He goes on and he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. We know Timothy is so to Lucius and Jason and uh, uh, Sisyphiter, okay, and, uh, and, and my kinsman, he says, I, Tertius, who writes this letter, greet you in the Lord. For those of you who don't know, Tertius was the person that Paul uh, spoke to, that Tertius wrote down the words. So he was actually kind of the stenographer, so to speak, or the scribe who wrote it. Gaius, host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, uh, the, the brother, his brother. What's interesting is we look at this, that all through the Roman Empire, as in all the world today, the gospel touches lives and changes lives. Here we even have a case where there's a politician who had come to faith in Christ. What a wonderful truth that is. Praise God for that. And Erastus, the city treasurer, and Cordus' brother. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's kind of put this all together. How do you conclude a study like we've had in the book of Romans? In Romans 25, I mean 16, 25, notice what he says. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, 
be the glory forever. As we conclude our study of Romans, I believe it's fitting that we see the effects of the gospel on the lives of so many people. The power of the dynamite of God to change lives. Through this section, we've learned that, that, that and through this series, we've learned that the, though man was created in the image of God, in his image and likeness, that man turned his back on God and disobeyed through sin. The Bible says that Adam, when he sinned, that through Adam's sin entered into the world. That even though man knew God, Romans 1 tells us that even though he knew God, he didn't honor him as God, didn't respect him as God, and didn't obey him as God. But man turned his back on God and rebelled against him. The Bible says through Adam, sin entered into the world. And because of that, through sin comes death. But every one of us as descendants of Adam have what the Bible calls a, a, a congenital birth defect. And that is we're all born with a sin nature. And that nature is manifested by the way that we live. The Bible says that every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. In Romans 3, we learn that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The bad news is that every one of us are born into this world condemned before God because of sin nature. And because that we, are sin, we have sin nature, we sin and exhibit what God says is true. None of us are perfect. None of us maintain God's standard. Every one of us in our own ways have fallen short of the glory of God. And the bad news is this, because of sin, the wages of the consequences of sin is death. Death, spiritual death, spiritually being separated from God for all of eternity. Physical death as a result of the sin nature that we have, that one day every one of us are going to die. It's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. That's bad news. We're all on our way. We're all condemned before God. We're all on our way to final judgment. We're all on our way to hell, the Bible says, as we, as actually the lake of fire, but it's a place of condemnation, of weeping and mourning, and it's a place of eternal, uh, eternal torture. And that's bad news. But the good news is that we've learned. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The good news is, is that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that whosoever, open invitation to all, whosoever would believe in Him, put their faith and their trust in Him, believe what God says about Him, believes the Word of God and trusts in Christ in, in His death for your sin. In his resurrection, the power over sin and over judgment and over condemnation to give hope and life to all who believe in him and peace with God. The Bible says for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, there is now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. You and I who have believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins will never be accountable to God for sin, yesterday, today, or forever, that all the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ upon the cross that his death is sufficient for our sins, sufficient for the entire world, but only applicable to those who believe. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And he knew firsthand Saul of Tarsus, who hated Jesus and hated Christians and persecuted even his own family. We learned he came to faith in Christ and he was never the same afterwards. And as he shared that gospel message with those that came in contact with him, we see one name after another name after another name after another name, one household after another, who have come to embrace the Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says for those who trust in Him, that they'll never, ever answer for sin. That we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord as we consider this truth and as we look at the lives that were affected and the lives that were changed, the question I have for each of us is this. 
have you come to a point in your own life where you've recognized what God says is true, that you're a sinner, and that you realize that you're judged and condemned by God because of it, that there's no hope for you outside of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you have not, today is the day of the Lord. And don't presume upon God or upon His grace to even give you more time to consider it, but to get that resolved once and for all in your own life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Women and men, educated or not, privileged or impoverished, from the world standpoint, young and old, their lives were touched by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As we near Christmas and celebrate the birth of the Savior, I want you to consider this in closing. It's been said if our greatest need had been information, that God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God has sent us a Savior. Have you trusted in Him? Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We just thank You that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to separate bone from marrow and judge the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. God, I just thank You for this list of great saints in times past who have come to faith in Christ and that were dedicated workers, fervent in spirit, in their service of you and of other believers. God, we just thank you for the example that they give us and the challenge that they lay out for each of us. God, as I mentioned, I just pray that each of us who have come to faith in Christ will get more serious about our walk with you in a way that we can be influencing those around us in a way that causes growth, not only in their lives, but in your kingdom, that we'll make disciples, that we'll be mentors, that as men we will lead our families to Christ and also not only in words, but the way that we live our lives. As women, that it'll be recognized the importance and the role that they play in, in being fellow heirs of the kingdom of God. Of young and old and rich and poor and black and white. God, help each of us to realize that we are created in your image. As we've come to faith in Christ, that we've resumed our rightful place in your creation as those who reflect your glory. God, help us to be used by you and, and may we be obedient to your calling. And we just praise you for the Savior who is born unto us in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. And we just thank you in his name. Amen.